Hi, I'm Lisa. And I'm Nick. And welcome to Lick, where nothing is off limits. Well, I'm, I'm really scared today because we have a very special guest. So please make sure you behave yourself, Nick, because we are joined via Zoom by Jeff Harris, who is one of Australia's leading businessmen and one of the co-founders of Flight Centre and actually an amazing philanthropist. So welcome to Lick, Jeff. Thank you, guys. Hi, like welcome, said, welcome. Welcome to, to Jeff getting licked, which is definitely... <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did get licked by my dog this morning, so that's pretty good. <laughs> well, um, Jeff, before we get into the, the meat and potatoes, how's your um, stress levels over the past couple of months? Well, it's been more, I guess, with the flights and a thing that we had to have a rights issue, which means we had to, uh, we, all of us as shareholders, uh, were somewhat diminished in our holding because we had to sell those shares to external parties to raise capital. And we had to, that rights issue was about $700 million. So Jeez, with, serious cash. With flights in it, essentially, as a travel company where international borders were closed and state borders, and who could have a plan for state borders as well? Um, flight Center as a company was turning over $22 million, 20-odd thousand staff in 14 countries, but our cash... 22, was, $22 billion or $22 million? Billion. 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 <laughs> billion. <laughs> but but the uh, cash burn was about, about $240 million a month. Wow. And all of a sudden, basically zero income. It's probably about 5% with uh, charters and mining companies and some politicians were flying around. But, so how do you go from $240 million a month to try to survive when you've got uh, you, your whole industry has been closed down? So that was the challenge. And uh, we had about three months cash uh, which would put aside planning for the company for a, an Armageddon, but not this sort of Armageddon where it could be 12 or 18 months before our industry turns to normal. So we, we essentially raise cash conventional with 18 months of, of full costs. So we can we can spend that 240 million without any income uh, and survive for 18 months. But obviously we'd like to get some income back reasonably soon as countries open up their state borders and we can do domestic travel. So it wasn't easy, and the, the, the big issue was, was obviously having to put up a lot of people, and that was very stressful for our board and management. Mm. We, uh, we caught up about a month ago, and you mentioned it's between 12 to 18 months before things return back to normal. Are you still predicting 12 to 18 months, or do you, do you think it may be earlier or later? Like, when do you think our borders will potentially open up? Well, hopefully they'll be in June, July, and that's what Morrison's been advocating for, and I think we've got this disease down to manageable proportions now. And so, and, and the transmission levels between people within states is very low. Mm. And it's basically, it's very similar to with each state. Uh, it's almost zero. So it makes, it makes no sense to me. And I can tell you the stress levels for so many people, mainly younger people in the service industries, hospitality industries, that have lost their jobs, anxiety levels, yeah. levels are just through the roof. Yeah. Uh, and I, I feel some ways as an elder in our society, somewhat guilty because this disease Basically, unfortunately, it's mainly people in their sort of seventies, eighties, nineties that have died, and yet we're handing over a generation of debt, of, ang of anxiety, of people losing their jobs, of SMEs, a lot of SMEs that are going broke or will go broke, and it's a very delicate balancing act, and it's an incredible job that uh, I think Morrison and his uh, bipartisan cabinet, national cabinet, doing a great job here. But it's a very delicate balancing act. We have to get it right because we've got the next generation. We don't want them to be lost in either intergenerational job loss or, or debts they can never repay. Uh, I'm going to, sorry, Lisa, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole here. Jeff, do you think that the situation has been handled correctly in terms of everyone should have been quarantined 
and locked down for say two or three months or do you think it should have been done uh, by certain generations in terms of the elderly should have been locked down and the younger generation business as usual? Look, that's a difficult one, Nick. I mean, I guess with a, a disease like this, it's pretty difficult. Now, all I know is I think we should be very proud as Australians that our government has handled it very well. If you look at, say, America, yep. there's been no bypass. <laughs> and also, we can be very thankful we have a wonderful health system. But all I'm saying is that the, the, it's a very delicate balancing act and that the, the, the cure could be worse than the actual disease itself in terms of potential business insolvencies, there's 800,000 SMEs. A lot of those won't reopen or will yeah. not be able to survive, which yeah. means hundreds of thousands of Australians, a lot of those young Australians, a lesser income, will never have a job or won't have a job uh, come this second half of the year. So that, that makes me very sad. That's, so what that's, the government has to do now in terms of their various committees, like they've got an II committee now, they have to look at all various ways of reducing regulations, reducing red tape, making it easy for business to employ people on a fair wage that we can get as many people back to work as possible because, you know, the best form of welfare is a job. Yeah, that's, and that's, my, um, that's where I'm leading towards. So obviously COVID-19 has led to um, hurting people's livelihood, which leads to depression. Depression leads to suicide and other uh, situations, which is obviously devastating and decimating Australia and, and the world. Well, an eminent Australian wrote a report to last month saying he feared the suicide rate could dramatically outweigh the death from the virus. Mm. So that's, that's worrying stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So Sorry, Lisa, for, for taking it down that rabbit hole. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, it's good. And, and I know that, Jeff, you're really passionate about helping the youth and underprivileged youth, and you've done a lot of work with REACH in the past and, you know, firstly, like amazing and congratulations and, and good on you for doing that because, you know, I think uh, we all have a responsibility to give back where we can. Now, it, it's interesting because I, I sort of feel like the younger generation have a lot more, um, I guess, knowledge around mental health and, and an openness to talk about mental health. I actually wonder how the slightly older generation will be going with their mental health because a lot of them are in management positions. So they're, they're having to manage people or let go of people or, you know, the stress levels be a lot higher. So how do you think they're going to actually go? Because not a lot of people, you know, I think about, you know, my parents' age and a bit younger, like they don't talk about mental health at all. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't an issue when we were young in the sort of, the, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s type thing. It just wasn't an issue. So we didn't, we didn't know about it, I guess. Hmm. Um, but I, look, I think it's really all about everyone. We're just going to look out for each other. We, whether you're an elder, whether you're a young person, we're just going to be really kind to people and make sure that we do whatever we can to help people, whether it's in our families or in our business community, to survive and prosper. Because it, it's not easy and it, and it will not be easy over the next uh, two or three years. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be a challenge. Yeah. Let's, um, let's take a few steps back, if you don't mind, Jeff. Obviously, we've just discussed uh, Corona. Mate, can you understand what made you found Flight Centre and how it became this kind of behemoth in the yeah. travel industry? Well, well um, I was in London in the 70s, Nick, and uh, I met two guys, Bill James and Graham Turner, and they just set up a company called Top Deck Travel, which was Aussies and Kiwis going around Europe and old English double-decker buses, bunks up <laughs> in the kitchen down. <laughs> they were basically party party trips, but th they did very well with that, and I was working for another company in London. We'd become great mates and come back to Australia to, to set up flight centres when Jumbo Jet Travel was really just starting to take off in the late 70s, early 80s. And we come up, we, we'd never worked in retail travel, but that was our, that was our advantage, that we, we applied clear, I guess, modern, practical thinking to an industry that was reasonably outdated. And we brought, we brought in things that hadn't been done before. We had everyone on a profit share. 
we had the team leaders in the shops uh, have ten percent of the profit share, and every every team member shared in the profits of the business. Um, we had morning day planners where people get in the in the store at eight o'clock, go over their day, plan it. The phones would come out at nine, so they were well prepared for a day's operation. We had we had clear monthly buzz nights where we would get everyone together, would recognise people for a job well done, would welcome new people into the business that get up on the stage, have to tell their story, skull a beer or whatever, but they'd be welcome to the community. Uh, as we grew, one of the things we also implemented, which was very important, was our family village tribe model. And that was when after we got to about a couple of thousand staff, we were starting to get complaints from people in stores you guys are never, we can never see, you're always on a plane, etc. You're not visible like you were in the good old days. So what we did is we brought in team structures of no more than seven people, between five and seven, either seven, either in store or our support teams, no more than five or seven as well. And so rather than having 20 people in a store, we'd have three stores with, with six or seven people, their own PL and their own business, or, or even some stores we had. Uh, 20 people, and we broke them up into teams of six or seven as well, but with their own profit share, their own PL uh, of breaking up their into business units. And now, the flight center model is essentially 22,000 staff, but teams of six or seven, and tribes of about 150. And those tribes are essentially based on indigenous uh, populations from the world around historically who can manage their people with a tribal elder and about 150 people under them. And everyone knew each other in that tribe. So rather than having one CEO looking after 22,000 people, they're broken up into, into areas of 150 and sub-teams of six or seven. And, and those, those tribes compete against each other with their own flag, their own name, their own support crew. So I think that's really interesting uh, uh, discussion on architecture, the social architecture of businesses as they grow and how you handle teams and how you... And, and, the ra- and the rationale for doing that. And that is so people feel belonging, a sense of belonging yep. and a sense of, uh, you know, I feel part of this business, I'm, I'm re- I feel recognised, I feel valued. And you can only do that if you break it up into smaller teams or smaller communities. So that was a really interesting port- part of the growth of flight centres. Uh, an egalitarian structure. I mean, Graham Turner, the CEO, was one of my ex-partners, still there. I've stepped back, I'm their shareholder now. Graham's never had a PA. <laughs> That's brilliant. 22,000 staff. That's amazing. None of us ever had a PA because we expected the store leaders not to have a PA. So you have, you have whatever, you, whatever values you have as a business leader, you have to live them out and be very consistent in that uh, messaging. Yeah, I think having that egalitarian model has been really interesting. Um, and I, I feel like it's contributed a lot to your success. And every time we hear you talk about your business, it's funny because people always talk about numbers and scaling and all that. But really, the, the common thread that you always talk about is the people and the culture. And you have this really great quote. You said, you know, people always talk about how in businesses, people are your greatest assets. But you said that's actually not right. It's having the right people yeah. are your greatest assets, like but, aces but, in their places. Absolutely, Lucy. You're spot on. I mean, the... The people your greatest assets is just bullshit. Only the right people <laughs> yeah. are your greatest assets. The wrong people are your biggest liability. Mm. Finding your aces in place, and if you're running an enterprise, you need absolute A-graders in your key management position. So if you've got half a dozen key drivers of the business and there's different pillars or different sections of the business, you need A-graders, not B or C-graders, because that will be your point of difference. And then you underline that with a, a wonderful culture in the organisation, which is clear clear vision which is owned by all uh open streamlined communication no surprises that the leaders are really out there all the time communicating and being visible 
Um, and as I said before, I think simple simple incentives, like the flight center model was a profit share, which is aligned to the shareholders' interest. I want the company to be more profitable. If the company is more profitable, workers make more because they're on a profit share. So I think that's a, and that's a, that's a crossing a Rubicon moment for a lot of businesses and not many businesses are prepared to share their net profits. I'm talking about after head office costs, but their net profits and have their staff aligned to that profit model. But it has worked very well. It worked very well for flight centers and boost when I got involved with Janine and I can assure you it's a, um, people providing they're being paid fairly will see it as a really good system because um, they, they can share in the action if the company's doing well. And commensurately, if you've got a lower base but a, a high profit payment, if the company's not doing well, you, that lower base kicks in because you're not making any profit. So mm. you've got like a floating of the dollar mechanism. Your, your, your pay is somewhat adjusted for how you're going. It's sort of fixed high costs, as it were. Jeff, if, in the early well, if you're doing very well, everyone does very well too. Mm. Jeff, in the early days of Flight Centre, you had two other partners. Were there any major disagreements um, or arguments in the early days, even in, in recent times, um, in, terms, in terms of running the business? Because I know this is a common problem for most businesses that have multiple partners. It is indeed. I think the, we were blessed in that I can look back now. We're all, well, I'm 69 in August and the other boys are in the early 70s. So we start off in our 30s. So but I've, I've stepped back from the business now day to day and so is Bill, but Graham's still in there. But we're, I guess we'd call ourselves brothers in many ways because we went through so much together and we risked all and several times it was right on the line um, and it was incredibly stressful. But I think my message to all business founders and owners is you've just got to, you've got to work with each other um, in, a, in, a, in a trustful way, a respectful way, um, share success together. Uh, if you have disagreements like a husband and wife, you've just got to talk it through and work through those issues because I look back now, one of the proudest things I can say is we're still great mates as founders of Flight Centre, which has to be one of Australia's great success stories. Uh, I value that. So you have to work on that shareholding uh, amongst your peers, amongst the other directors and shareholders and, and make sure everyone feels valued. And uh, We used to have uh, annual get getaways with all of our families and, and have a bit of fun, blow out the cobwebs uh, and use it as a plan <laughs> as well. So I think just working on your relationship as as direct co-directors is really important because it can be very stressful when everything's on the block. Have a clear vision of where you want to be and a clear exit strategy of where you want to be as well so everyone's on the same page. Yeah. What do you do when you get stressed out in business? Because you were talking about, well, just before you jumped on this call, you went for a swim in the ocean and it's probably about know, one degree outside. I don't know how you no, did minus that. Minus 10, it was a bloody goal. <laughs> minus 10? <laughs> Jesus. Um, well, look, I, I think uh, all of us... Uh, ran every day so I think exercise is pretty important you've got to look after your health um, and that's an important part of any sort of a stressful occupation looking after you know, be careful what you eat and, and be careful of, um, you've got to have a plan for your body as well as a plan for your business and indeed one of the things we brought in at flight centers which was very important in the early days was two things money wise and health wise money wise was a thing we actually employed full-time financial counselors to do one-on-ones with every staff member twice a year taught them how to budget save and invest how to work the share market Real estate, and that then taught them how to set their own personal budgets as a human being and save for them and their families. Uh, and then we brought in HealthWise, which is again a similar six-monthly professional health people. We set up gyms in every head office, and we had both financial counselling and health health topics at our uh, biannual conferences that we were locked in by MoneyWise and HealthWise, coaching people on money issues and health issues. As so, to make them better people, I guess, and more rounded individuals. 
That's no, fantastic. Really important initiative. That's excellent. Mate, on staying on the topic of health, um, at our lunch recently, I found out that you're involved with Boost Juice. What's your involvement with that business and, um, and when did you get involved? No, no, I, I stepped back from flights in a day today in the uh, early 2000s and I saw, met Janine Ellis. Uh, she had four shops at that stage, had three kids under 10. <laughs> I started off making juice in the kitchen sink at home, but had four shops. So I was really busy, but she was incredibly busy with being a mum and a business person. I said, look, I've had an experience and a rollout with flights and let's have a talk. You're, she was in the healthy to-go section. So healthy food, but to-go, whereas McDonald's and all the other ones were in the greasy, fatty stuff in the early 2000s before they mm. sort of brought on a healthier menu. So I saw it as a, as a growth, growth business in that to-go area. And we sat down and had a cup of coffee and uh, then I met her and her husband the next week and then we, we shook hands and we agreed on a 25% partnership in a business. And I wrote her out a check and we just simply shook hands and got on with it. I can't believe you just did it over it like it. Yeah, just that. Well, yeah, and, and you know, interestingly, <laughs> we sold the majority of the business to in a private equity deal with 270 stores about 10 years later. In that meeting room was about 15 lawyers and accountants from the other shareholders were in the business as well at that stage and also the acquirers and Janine and I looking at each other, remembering the early days when we shook hands. So I think that's a really important element that you know, trust is really vital in any partnership, in any business, uh, respect and trust with each other and that, that goes a long way. And certainly with Boost, uh, we had, a, we had a, a franchise model that we worked on. Our, our thing was making franchisees as profitable as possible. A lot of franchisors clip the ticket and they just want to clip as much as possible and don't really care about the profitability of the franchisee. But if you want a sustainable model, you have to make sure that every franchisee who has invested, their, in many cases, their life savings in that franchise are as profitable as possible. So that's really how we worked our business to, to really make sure that every franchisee, we gave them the tools to run the most profitable business they could uh, could run and they were the best they could be in their business. And by definition, if they're more profitable, the turnover is going to be higher boost the franchise or wins. 100%. So before you wrote that, before you wrote that. Another interesting one, we set up an elders council of franchisees, half a dozen elders, who then any, every, a lot of controversial subjects, be it pay rise or whatever, we ran through the elders council, got their agreement and they fine tuned it before that was rolled out to the franchisees. So again, the, you know, the ownership of difficult decisions by people within the business was done and they were pretty chuffed being selected as sort of elders. So that was a really interesting concept as well, how to get buy-in of controversial decisions. Mm. So before you wrote that check for Janine, did you review the books? Did you review the business or just met her, loved her? And it smelled good, felt good. <laughs> I got them to give their P&L, which is simply you know, a quick bit of P&L, but uh, I knew the thing would be profitable. Uh, it needed a lot of tidying up. Their financial reporting was poor, so we did a lot of uh, checks and balances in terms of getting the right people in the spots to have the financial reporting for us as directors to work on. But it was really just the model. I knew in my gut it was right. So that was a great investment, but how many of these other investments have you done um, that have turned out poorly? Obviously, you loved Janine and her business. Yeah, yeah. we've had several other ones I won't mention. Yeah. Uh, more in the technological space, tech tech space, that haven't worked. Uh, and that's why we've set up our own. We've got a family office now. It's my son, Brad Renz, which runs our various investments. We've got a, an investment vehicle, a private equity vehicle called Straight Bat, um, as in playing with a straight bat. And we invest in small to medium businesses, highly profitable, founders maybe in their 30s, 40s that are looking to get take a bit of cash out and yeah. we, we buy up to 50% of the business, 
invest in the business and then help them on their journey to take the business to the next level. And the, and the income from the dividends of those business becomes the, the earning capacity for the, the people that invest in the fund. So we tend to pay between you know, net about 40% a year to the investors, which comes from the dividend stream of the businesses. And then we help, Janine is on the board, I am and a bunch of other people to help those business owners grow their business. Just good, solid Australian businesses. So that's an interesting, so we, but we look at tens of thousands and refine it down to a couple of hundred, pick about 20 then do a due diligence on about 10 and buy two or three out of that 10. So we really go through the ring. So um, what's the key thing you look for? Because obviously you're going to get presented with a lot of opportunities. What is the number one thing that you always look for and that will get you across the line to invest? Um, consistent, a model that's consistently profitable. It's got potential for growth in an industry for potential for growth. Like I guess you talked about the digital platform before, Nick, and that's a clear tick, you know, so in a, in a, it will be a growth industry. So consistently profitable, good, solid founders who we share the values with and, and, and have proven themselves as business people uh, and that we'd feel comfortable being in bed with us aware over the next 10 years to help them grow the business. So they're, they're the key things. Um, yeah, and really it can be... We, have, we adopt the Warren, Burke, uh, Warren Buffett. Berkshire Hathaway yeah. model and he invests in carpet factories and brick factories and paint companies, boring, basic companies. <laughs> the tide goes out, people are still going to buy paint, mm. blah, blah, blah. So just in everyday businesses, they don't have to be sexy, uh, but as I said, good founders, solid profits, growth, growth potential. Good one. Well, we're actually about to run out of time, so Nick, I'm going to let you ask one more question. <laughs> Jeff, mate, just lastly, what's next for you? Is it kind of battling through the next, say, 12 months, or is there other opportunities on the horizon for you? Uh, we really, one, one of the things I really want to do is I'm really fascinated in the social enterprise sector, and that's okay. businesses, a business model uh, providing their profits and dividend to, help, to alleviate a social issue. And one of the key ones in Victoria is street Street uh, Enterprises, which is a, what, Street Youth, which does is a social enterprise for kids at risk. And they get about 500 kids a year through their programs. We bought the building for them in Collingwood. Uh, we rent it out at five bucks a year for 50 years. And they do, they've now got up to about 82% covering of all their courses for those kids from the businesses that they run to achieve a social outcome. So there's 60 odd thousand charities in Australia all fighting for funding, government philanthropy funding and their own internal fundraising every year. Social enterprises raise their own funds, and yet they're a charity that achieves so achieving social outcomes. And I just think that's such a logical way. There's three ways: there's government welfare, charities, or social social enterprise. And I think social enterprise is a potentially really big growth model in Australia for business to do good, and and entrepreneurial founders with a social heart uh, that prepare to solve social problems. And it's it's there, it's real, and it's growing. So I'm pretty passionate about that. I love that. And I think social enterprise, you're right, is such a growth area because people are almost, you know, bombarded every day with people going, oh, I'm a charity, donate money, donate money. And it's almost like you don't know where to put your money. Whereas you could go to a cafe that then uses all their profits. Just to stay in the middle. Exactly, exactly. So I love that. So Nick yeah. and I are actually off to a farm next week, which is, it's called Food for Change. And they're helping supply meals to um, underprivileged people. Obviously, there's a lot of them during Corona who can't get access to food. So, yeah, I think that something yeah. like that. So, so I think that social enterprises is, dis is a dis disruptor of the traditional charity sector, but it's yeah. only in infancy, so that's where we want to see it grow a bit further. 
Yeah, amazing. Excellent. Good stuff. Thank you so much for your time, Jeff. We really, really appreciate it. And thank you for the call. It was fantastic. And Absolute pleasure, guys. Good we, could have, we could have spoken for hours, but next yeah. time we can catch up for a swim in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for okay. your time, Jeff. Appreciate it, mate. Thank you, Lisa. Okay. Okay, bye. Thank you. Bye.